Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Valerie Jarrett, the longest serving senior advisor to President Barack Obama, working in his administration from the first day of his presidency right to the last. She is now the author of the new book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, which is available to purchase now. Before we begin, if you enjoyed today's interview or any of the other episodes that have been released, please take 30 seconds to click that subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. It's really appreciated. Valerie Jarrett, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Edward. I'm delighted to be here with you. The book is titled Finding My Voice. Why did you choose that title and why did you decide to write it now? Well, after uh, I finished um, those eight years in the Obama administration, I took some time to reflect and I was... I'd had the best job in the world, and so at this stage of my life, I wasn't looking for a new job. And my daughter uh, asked me a question. She said, what would you tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? And so I started off answering that question, because as it turned out, I had a lot to say to a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett. Because at 30, I was painfully shy. I hadn't found my own voice. I was in a job that was extremely unsatisfying to me. I was in a terrible marriage. and. I had to start by learning to trust the most important voice, and that's the one inside of us, each of us. And from there, I swerved outside of my comfort zone, and the adventure began. And so part of my message is to um, look at life as an adventure and to take chances, and if you're not satisfied or fulfilled in what you're doing, then it's okay to change course. And I had been clinging to the rather straight course that I had predetermined for myself, and I was not confident enough to swerve. And when I swerved, that was really where I found my voice and then I began to use it to be a force for good and to help other people find theirs. When you decided to change course with your career, you didn't only impact yourself, but you had a massive impact on America because you first met former First Lady Michelle Obama when she was Michelle Robinson, when you interviewed her for a job. Through Michelle Obama, you met Barack Obama, and you're seen as the person that managed to convince him to put himself into public life. What was your first impression of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama? Well, I met them both in the summer of 1991, and I was trying desperately to hire Michelle Robinson, who was engaged to Barack Obama, and I gave her a job offer on the spot. Wisely, she demurred and said she wanted to think about it, and when I spoke with her again, she said her fiancé did not think it was such a great idea. And I said, well, who is your fiancé and why do we care what he thinks? And she said she, his name was Barack Obama and that he had started his career as a community organizer. And he had concerns about her going from a big corporate law firm right into the mayor's office. And I had gone from a big law firm into the law department and practiced for the city for four years before going to the mayor's office. And so he said, well, how about if we all get together and have dinner? And I was intrigued by that because I would have done anything to hire her. She was so impressive. And so the three of us had dinner. And what I saw in both of them still holds true today. And that's a couple committed to service. And at that stage of their careers, they weren't sure what path it would take. And he always did have the kind of the fire in his belly for politics. She had the fire for service. So he combined them both. And she really was not so much interested in the politics, but rather just giving back to first the city and then the country that she loves so dearly. And I recognized uh, in him in, those, in that first dinner 
an inner strength and confidence and worldliness. We talked about our childhoods and how we both lived outside of the country and how that shaped our view of the United States and how it fits into the broader um, uh, world. And I thought, my goodness, maybe one day he could be mayor of Chicago. So I can't tell you that I knew back then, Edward, that he would be president of the United States. But I, I just thought that he had an incredible uh, gift and commitment for service. You mentioned there about how you lived outside of America. You spent the first five years of your life in Iran due to racism and segregation in the US during the 1950s, which made it difficult for your father to find work. How did that experience of living in Iran shape your view of America and also of Iran and the relationship between those two nations? Well, back in the 50s, the United States and Iran had very strong diplomatic relations. The Shah was in power, and in fact, one of his initiatives was to improve health care in Iran. And the job that was made available to my father, one that he could not get in the United States, was to chair the Department of Pathology and help start a brand new hospital in Shiraz, Iran, the Namazi Hospital. And I was the second baby born in that hospital. They practiced on some other baby first, and then along and I came. And we lived there uh, for five years, and we lived on a hospital compound with families of physicians from all over the world. And so I was speaking Farsi and English and French and playing with children who had very different backgrounds than my own. And part of what I learned there is, is that we are basically all very similar and that you can find something in common with just about everybody. I also learned that uh, people who haven't lived outside of the United States in underdeveloped countries often take what they have for granted. And so for me, whether it was the fact that in Iran my mother had to boil everything I drank and peel everything I ate and the civil liberties and freedoms that we have in a democracy in the United States obviously are very different. And then finally I learned that you know, the United States is a great country, it's not the only country, and that we can learn a great deal outside of our shores. And so I think those early years living in Iran, and then also we lived here in Great Britain for a year after Iran. My father was at uh, the uh, Galton Labs at University College of London doing research there. And then we traveled a great deal throughout my childhood uh, because of my father's research. And so I think that gave me this context that sometimes uh, we in America think that it, it's only the United States, and though that's far from true. As we mentioned, one of the reasons at the time was that Iran was far more progressive than the United States when you first moved over there, particularly. In that sense. In, in that yes, sense. Yes, and so my father went from being a black doctor in the United States mm. to being an American doctor in Iran. Yes, that's true. Do you think that the rise in right-wing extremism in the United States and across the world is at risk of creating an atmosphere in America that once again makes people feel that they have to leave America because of the discrimination that they face? I hope not. I hope not. It is a it is look there's the United States is still grappling with the vestiges of discrimination. Uh, left over from decades ago. We've seen uh, in the last few years um, a rise in making people feel as though they are other and whether it is their religion or whether it's their sexual orientation or gender identity uh, and uh, of the color of their skin and, or whether they're immigrants. And we are seeing that around the world. But as I have traveled, um, I still think that more people have the same attitude that I had as a young person, which is we have more in common than we have differences. And I think what we're hungry for in the United States 
uh, and I hope in other places as well, is the kind of leadership that brings us together and doesn't polarize us. Uh, it would be a real shame if the United States stopped being that beacon of democracy and hope that it is, uh, and leadership that it has been for so long in the world. And that's why I'm working so hard to find a Democratic candidate who can win in the next election and so hopefully reinstill those values of um, the values that I hold so dear, which is, as I said, uh, diversity is a strength and it makes us stronger. And those are the characteristics you're looking for in a 2020 candidate? I am looking for a candidate who believes that we are stronger when we are finding what we have in common, that does try to bring us together, that cares about um, working families who are struggling um, harder than they should have to, uh, who is uh, concerned about people having a living wage, being able to raise their children, um, send their children to college without being burdened with excessive debt when they finish, uh, have a better life than their parents had, and for people to be able to retire with dignity and not have to worry about whether or not they're going to go broke if they have an illness, so affordable health care. Those are the kinds of issues that I hear as I have been traveling around our country. And so they don't really lend themselves to labels, but they really lend themselves to core values, democratic values that I believe are actually American values. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the 2020 Democratic yes, primary. Yes, you would be remiss. <laughs> <laughs> Former Vice President Joe Biden is currently the front runner in the polls. We are a long way out from the primaries still, but he is the front runner in the polls. You worked alongside Vice President Biden for eight years. You've said he'd make a terrific president. Do you think he can clinch the Democratic nomination? I think it's far too soon to say. Uh, as you said, we are um, a long way out, seven months out from Iowa, and the only poll that really matters is the one on Election Day. Uh, but he certainly has a lot of strengths. I think we have an embarrassment of riches in the field. And I'm heartened to see so many talented people um, throwing their hat in the ring and wanting to, to lead our country, particularly at this really pivotal moment in our nation's history. We talked about Iran earlier. The Trump administration at the moment has been increasing rhetoric and tension threatening Iran. The current national security advisor, John Bolton, has made no secret of the fact he supports war with Iran. He wrote an op-ed, in fact, titled, To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran. Do you think the U.S. is heading towards an armed conflict with Iran? I certainly hope not. I mean, obviously, President Obama's approach was very different. Uh, he, together with um, the U.K., the European Union, Germany, China, Russia, all came together and forged uh, a deal with Iran that would prohibit Iran from developing nuclear weapons. And we thought that diplomatic solution coupled with other world leaders uh, putting pressure on Iran was the, was the best way of assuring that Iran did not develop nuclear weapons. Um, so uh, obviously going to war with Iran is not something that would be good for either of our countries or the world, and we would have chosen a different path. The consensus amongst many in the international community is that Iran's been seeking to act as a disrupting influence in the Middle East including in relation to recent attacks on shipping in that area. We've seen that in the news reports from this past week. Do you agree with this view and how do you believe matters will develop as someone who's seen how the Obama administration handled Iran but obviously has that personal understanding of the country? Well, it's hard for me to predict what this administration will do. That's part of the challenge. Uh, they've, they've taken a very different course than we took. 
And I thought, um, I still believe that our course was the strongest course, and by withdrawing from that deal, that destabilized the situation. And so um, I really can't predict what will happen going forward. You were next to President Obama from the beginning of his presidency right to the end, and the story you share in your book gives a uniquely intimate view of the Obama administration. At the end of eight years of working in the White House, you were able to look back on a myriad of accomplishments, including cutting the unemployment rate in half, giving 20 million people the ability to have health care, and making sure that LGBT people had the right to get married. What was the hardest moment and the happiest moment of your time working in the administration? Well, that's tough, um, because every day was a privilege. I would say the hardest moments were the ones where we were grappling with uh, the despair from gun violence. We have an epidemic of gun violence in our country. Uh, I mentioned in the book accompanying President Obama to Newtown after the Sandy Hook massacre where 20 children and six adults were murdered by someone barely an adult himself. Uh, and we went to just far too many memorial services and it was really beyond me to understand how when the vast majority of Americans supported sensible steps to keep guns out of the hands of someone who's a threat to themselves or to someone else, we lose over 30,000 people a year to gun violence, two-thirds who commit suicide. Um, and so that was just so enormously frustrating to me, and it was throughout the administration. Um, the happiest moments, I suppose, every day when I had the privilege of driving through the gates of the White House, I could, I would pinch myself. I couldn't believe that the... I had the privilege of working there, serving a president uh, who I both love and respect so dearly and have known for so long. I suppose the night that the Affordable Care Act passed was a pretty special moment because uh, the odds were against us. Seven presidents before him had tried and failed to get it passed, and we had been having such a tough time, and it seemed, I mean, we'd, we had adopted a plan that was similar to what Governor Romney had passed a, gov a Republican governor in Massachusetts when he was the governor there. So it should have had more bipartisan support than it did. But when it finally passed, I do remember asking President Obama how he felt that night compared to election night. And he said, well, there's no comparison. Election night was all about being able to deliver something really important to the American people. And I remember him saying that to me out on the Truman balcony in the wee hours of the morning while we were celebrating its passage. So that was very special. And another night that was also special was the, the night that um, the Supreme Court, or the day that the Supreme Court ruled on marriage equality, and I spent the evening out on the north lawn of the White House watching as the sun went down and the colors of the rainbow um, washed the house brilliantly. And it just felt like, what a privilege to be there for a thunderbolt uh, bending the arc of the moral universe towards justice in the words of Martin Luther King but recognizing the decades of hard work that go into having those kind of thunderbolts, but I'm just happy it happened on our lunch. One of your big drives during your time in the White House was championing women. You organized regular dinners with the President for Women to share their thoughts and ideas with him. Why did you feel it was so important to elevate women's voices in that environment? And did you feel that women had previously been shut out of the larger conversations that happened in the White House? I felt their voices were shrinking and the reason why I thought it was important for them to speak up is that President Obama 
had handpicked each of them, and I knew how much he valued their input. And he said to them, "I'll make di- I'll make better decisions if you speak up." And I think oftentimes, you know, we bring to the table the experiences that we'd had previously, and the senior women had not. Um, I was the only one that really had a pre-existing relationship with him, so they didn't know what he expected. And it was so empowering for him to say to them, "Fight for your ideas, not for yourself, but for me." because it will make me better. And I think that that sense of, that's a part of my job. And he said, look, this is the White House. Nobody said it would be easy, but you have different perspectives. You have expertise that others don't have. And so participate and engage and make me a better president as a result of it. And it wasn't just the women. I mean, he was very empowering. For anyone who had um, the courage to disagree with him, he would embrace that and he would encourage it and he would his body language would signal and it, and it's so important for people in leadership positions to do that because the higher you go the less likely it is that people will tell you that they disagree with you mm-hmm. number one because they might be intimidated or number two they might just assume you have you know better answers because you are the leader and he really wanted everybody to feel the sense of uh, engagement with him and willingness to to speak up and, and contradict his ideas and push him to make the most informed decision possible. And he cast a broad net. And whenever, whenever he made a decision, not only did he talk to his staff in the White House, from the junior most person to the senior and anyone who had a good idea he wanted to hear from and included them in meetings with him, but he also wanted to make sure that the people whose lives were going to be impacted by our decisions had a seat at the table too. And so one of my responsibilities was to bring in those voices from around the country in terms of a wide range of constituents who would have been affected, but also elected officials who weren't in Congress, so mayors and governors and elected officials who were on the ground and had a good pulse of what, uh, what the reaction would be to any given policy in their communities. And so this level of uh, inclusiveness in the decision-making process is something that was very important to him and then you have to make the decision and ultimately the buck stops with the leader but he surely wanted to make sure that there weren't any unintended consequences from his decisions and that they were benefiting the people they were intended to benefit. There's been significant debate over whether America's ready for a female president sparked by the number of qualified women running for the Democratic nomination. You can see it in the headlines that are out there or the conversations that take place in cable news. Do you think America is finally ready for a female president? Of course it is. Don't forget, Hillary Clinton won the majority of the vote in 2016. Uh, She lost by less than 100,000 votes in three states. So, uh, and we now have six really qualified women in the race. So I think certainly the United States is ready for a female president. And I think Just as with President Obama, there were many who thought we weren't ready for an African-American president. And I often say that things seem uh, impossible until they're inevitable. And I think that it's just a matter of time before it's inevitable that we have uh, a woman who's president. We've talked about the previous president, President Obama, but for a moment, let's turn to the current president. There's been, oh, must be must be. <laughs> there's been an argument from some Democrats that they shouldn't begin impeachment hearings, despite special counsel Robert Mueller's redacted report that we've seen so far, finding at least 10 potential cases of obstruction of justice by President Trump. It's believed that the reason they don't want to proceed with impeachment hearings is because of the fear that the Republican-controlled Senate will acquit him and he'll be able to claim that he's 
been proven innocent. You've said that President Obama would have been impeached in, quote, a nanosecond if he behaved like President Trump. In your view, should Democrats begin impeachment hearings against President Trump? Um, I, that's an issue upon which I rely completely on Speaker Pelosi. I have enormous respect for her and her knowledge of her caucus and, um, and what would make sense given the facts. I am profoundly disturbed by the findings in the Mueller report and I support fully the committees exploring and doing uh, as much investigation as possible to try to get to the bottom of everything. Uh, and I think that the Mueller report made it clear that he was only taking it but so far and then was kicking it over to Congress. And so I think Congress should do its job. But as for um, impeachment, whatever Speaker Pelosi decides is right, I would support. My efforts really go to not second guessing what the House of Representatives does. I'm sure that the Senate would not impeach him uh, because they haven't showed any inclination so far to push back on anything he's done over the last couple of years. Uh, but I, my focus is on where I can make an impact and that is trying to encourage people to register and vote. I was deeply troubled that only 43, that 43% of eligible voters in the United States did not vote in the last election, presidential election. We saw an upsurge, uptick in the number, percentage of people who voted in the midterm elections, and I was heartened to see the uh, House of Representatives go back into Democratic control. But we have a long way to go to engage the American people and to change our culture around voting. Mrs. Obama and I started a new organization that's nonpartisan called When We All Vote because we believe that our country will be stronger if everybody participates in the most basic and fundamental responsibility of citizenship and that's voting. What would you say to those who didn't vote because they feel discouraged at the current state of politics today, who believe that Washington is broken, whichever side is elected? Then they should fix it. And you fix it by finding a candidate that you can support. And if you don't like the people who are in, in the race, then find somebody that you do and get behind that person. But ultimately, uh, you have to vote. And, and Vice President Biden used to often say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I think uh, too often we'll say, well, you know, I'm really not thrilled with either one. Or a complacency of, well, my vote, you know, doesn't really matter. And what we saw in the last election, because of how close it was, that yes, no, every single vote does actually matter. And that elections have consequences. And sometimes the people who are most directly affected by the consequences are the very ones who don't vote. And so I think this has been a huge wake-up call in the United States. And I hope that we see a big turning of the tide uh, come 2020. Your daughter, Laura, is a reporter at CNN. Under the Trump administration, the press has been the subject of much criticism by President Trump and members of his administration, particularly CNN. Do you think this has adversely affected the role of mainstream media as a mainstay of democracy within America? I think it makes it more important than ever. And uh, every chance I get, I tell the press how grateful I am that they are there to provide the kind of check and balance that I think we need at a time like this. I mean, so just we just were talking about Congress. The Republicans in Congress have basically abdicated their responsibility to be a check and balance on the executive branch. And so we really we rely so heavily on the press to do its job. I was just at the New York Times 
at a conference that they had about uh, gender equity and I made a point of saying there that it's tough right now because many times the press are being attacked both uh, personally and it affects their families and uh, and so it isn't just professional it's personal too so we need the press now more than ever and I think that people are championing them as well they should Attacks on the press and special counsel Robert Mueller's report aren't the only areas which have sparked controversy in the Trump administration. You were on Fox Business the other day talking about the Hatch Act, which, for those that don't know, bars federal employees from participating in certain political activity. You said that President Obama would have fired you if you had violated the Hatch Act in the way that members of President Trump's administration, Kellyanne Conway, um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, have found to have done. Do you think the Trump administration is now simply ignoring the Hatch Act, persistently violating it? And do you think that he should take a strong stance and fire those in his administration that do it? Look, uh, Tom starts at the top. and. What President Obama's view was is that the Hatch Act was there to safeguard the public from knowing that their tax dollars were not being spent in a political way. That when you're working in the White House or in the administration doing your day job, it's supposed to be not political. If you want to volunteer for a campaign in the evening or take some time off to go work on campaigns, that's perfectly fine, but the law prohibits it. And so we colored well within the lines, and it was very important to President Obama to um, have an administration that was scandal-free. When the special um, investigator says there is a chronic problem here, you'd like to think that that's something that would would cause the administration to pause. Um, But so far it hasn't. And so that's troubling to me. So I'm not in a position to say what they should or should not do. I can certainly tell you what we did. And I think that those laws are there for a reason. And I think that it's important, again, to have these checks and balances. And so if you just simply ignore them, then you are lawless. And that's not, that's not a democracy. Do you think it's a thin end of the wedge issue where they start by violating the Hatch Act and ignoring those violations and it builds and builds? It can become a slippery slope. And, and, and again, that's another reason why we try to stay well within the lines and to send a message from the very top about what would be tolerable and what would be not tolerable. And that's how you go eight years without any scandals. We've talked about political candidates heading into 2020. You once considered running for mayor of Chicago. You ultimately chose not to do that. Why did you decide not to run for office at that time? And would you consider running for public office in the future? Well, the time that I most seriously considered running for mayor, um, Mayor Daley decided to run for another term. And I was thinking of running if he decided not to. I would never run against Mayor Daley. He was my mentor, my friend, and I could not have beat him. Um, And then I think at this stage of my life, what I'm really interested in doing is helping other people run for office. I mean, for example, I was uh, involved with several of the candidates who were running during the midterm session and encouraging them and supporting them. I've spoken to several of the candidates who were running in the Democratic primary and, again, encouraging them and giving them the benefit of 
of my years of experience. And so that's the stage of life I'm in right now is to really help the next generation. I don't, I don't have the fire in my belly to run for office right now. This isn't going to be one of those situations like when you change your mind about getting into politics in the first place. It you're, could you're, be. Uh, you never know. <laughs> well, I did say I would never, ever work for the federal government when I worked in local government. And so I had to eat those words. But if you were to say to me at this phase of my life, and, and I do believe this, I believe, and I learned this working in local government, I'd work. Public service is 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned, you know, you can't go to the grocery store, you can't take your daughter to the park, your life is an open book, there's no privacy. And that's as it should be. That's what service mm-hmm. is all about. And unless you're prepared to do that um, and make that sacrifice and not feel it's a sacrifice, then you shouldn't do it. And I, and I also have discovered that there are lots of ways to serve and you don't have to actually be in political office. And perhaps in this current climate for me, I can make a bigger impact fighting for gender equity and criminal justice reform and encouraging voting outside of the political world. Your book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward is available to purchase now. Valerie Jarrett, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Edward. I enjoyed our conversation. That was Valerie Jarrett, the longest serving senior advisor to President Barack Obama. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.